0: Welcome to the Insight Through Experience podcast, a podcast created to provide information about what life is like inside the most specialized special tactics organization in the U.S. Air Force. In these episodes, we'll be bringing you the experiences from many of our experts, ranging from our human performance optimization staff, our combat mission supporters, as well as our special warfare operators. Our main objective with these podcasts are to provide the listener with a unique look inside our culture of excellence in hopes that you will make the 724 a future career goal. Now sit back, relax, take some notes, prepare to hear from some of the Air Force's finest. Thank you for joining us on the Insight Through Experience podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Insight Through Experience podcast. We have another cool episode for you. In fact, we've been trying to get this one in for about six months now, and syncing up my schedule with these guys' schedules has been really challenging, Um, and that's just the life inside the 724. So uh, today we're bringing you um, Intel specialists, two of them. Ken and Jeremy are joining me today on the show to really relate to the audience everything Intel and, and what it's like here at the organization. So... To help the audience gain a better understanding of who you are and where you came from, just give a uh, starting with Ken. Just give a brief background of how you ended up in the Air Force and then in Intel.
1: Oh, well, my! Uh, my journey started at the uh, tender age of uh, 26 years old. Uh,
0: after I had
1: uh, had a professional career on the outside, uh, done some college, uh, tried to find my way in the civilian sector. Um, I was in a uh, kind of a title uh, title officer role within uh, real estate in uh, Southern California. And about uh, 2006 timeframe, the uh, real estate market uh, decided to take take its uh, turn up upside down and needed uh, something a little more and wanted to do something a little more with my life. So I decided to enlist in the uh, Air Force as a uh, fire protection specialist. Uh, actually, long story with that one, uh, became a fire protection specialist. I uh, was stationed in Cocoa Beach, Florida, at Patrick Air Force Base. I uh, spent five years at that assignment. And uh, around 2012 time frame, uh, the Air Force decided to kind of restructure its NCO posture within the fire protection career field and uh, ended up uh, choosing from the uh, mandatory retraining list into um, intelligence operations or a 1-0 uh, career field. Um, didn't really have a lot of insight into it. Uh, did the garden variety you know, web search on uh, Air Force Portal. Had some generic information and uh, decided to throw my hat in the room for uh, being a... Being one and want to
0: know. Awesome. Thanks, Ken. Ken and I got to work together for a year to two inside, uh, debt one, which runs all training and selection for the organization. So I know Ken fairly well, and it's good to have him on here. All right, Jeremy, over to you.
2: Hey, uh, so for me, I had a little different approach. I started at the age of 17, um, right out of high school, jumped in and, uh, kind of <laughs> got a weird start off with my recruiter. Um, I wanted to be a photographer and wanted to do stuff like that. And he kept telling me, well, there's only like one slot a year. So, uh, you know what, how about you just take this test? We're going to see how smart you are and, uh, we'll go from there. And me being 17 and cocky, it was like, all right, sure. Let's do that. And, uh, yeah, so it was the D lab, um, ended up doing well enough to get picked up for that, I guess. So he, uh, he was telling me, Oh man, because you did well on this test, you're going to be a secret agent now, like James Bond and, Again, 17, didn't know any better. And he's like, so uh, we're just going to get rid of your previous contract, and we're going to give you this new one here. And uh, that's how I ended up being a linguist. So I went to DLI for uh, two years and trained up as a Chinese linguist. Passed that, went to my first duty station in Hawaii, and then found out that, you know, that's going to be my life for the rest of my career here in the Air Force is just going back and forth between Hawaii and uh, Fort Meade. And I wasn't really keen on that because I joined to to go to a lot of places, and you know, I wanted to deploy as well, which wasn't an opportunity at the time based on what I was doing. So uh, I took the first term airman uh, retraining and was able to get into uh, what I do now, which is geoent. So I did a stint over at Langley, and then I uh,
0: got picked up over here. I know people outside the Air Force are probably listening to this and and hear you two talk about Cocoa Beach. And having to rotate over to Hawaii and back, like, man, you guys, what? Uh, those are those are some pretty good backgrounds and interesting for me too. Um, let me let me ask you, and we'll go back to Ken for this one. What was your Intel job like before you came here? Um, just to build some of that relatability with the audience out there.
1: Yeah, certainly. So my first duty station uh, for the Intel group was at Ellsworth Air Force Base, and uh, outside of Rapid City, South Dakota. It was an RPA unit or remotely piloted aircraft uh, unit as intel support. So starting out, I was a mission, what's called a mission intelligence coordinator um, or MIC. Um, so you are essentially sitting in the squadron operations center. Um, it's a small room with screens and multiple workstations with ISR feeds and Merc, uh, Merc chat rooms, and uh, you know just a lot going on for that and you know, a lot of coordination. So. Um, you start out kind of sitting the line, per se, uh, which is actually sitting at your workstation and supporting a uh, particular RPA ca- uh, app or uh, supporting of that mission. And um, you are more of like the intermediary between uh, the ground supporting units and the actual um, RPA um, like pilot and sensor operator. You're kind of fielding all the questions and all the coordination and you're just relaying over a secured comms. Um, back to the actually funny, uh, the GCS, which is just on the other side of the squadron operations center. Uh, so essentially, they're just right across the hall from me. Um, so just relaying um, uh, data points and uh, coordination back to them to make sure that we're focused on what we should be focused on at that uh, particular mission set.
0: Dude, that is so interesting to me. Um, I've never heard it described like that, never heard really inside an RPA squadron like that what you guys are doing on the inside. So that's interesting. Jeremy, over to you. Your, your assignment before you came here, what was that like? What were you doing on a daily basis? Uh, so, um, let's see. I was at uh, Langley.
2: It's in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. Um, I was working at a DGS, which uh, distributed ground system. For Intel, it can kind of be like a black hole for assignments because once you get uh, that DGS code on you, uh, it sticks with you. And so they're like, well, you've got that experience. We'll just move you to another DGS. And they've got them all over the world and uh yeah so you're doing kind of the same job over and over again which is another reason why i was kind of like bummed when i i got there because you know the whole reason i retrained was to do different things and go different places and such so but um i I did enjoy my time there as soon as i i got there uh, i was a retrainee, but i was retraining from intel so i had the same exact badge as everybody else so they didn't know they just saw me as a e5 that you know should know what he's doing so uh it was really like sink or swim real quick, and I had to just kind of figure out my way. And so went in, and I was a basic uh,
0: geo-analyst, so we
2: were working with um, uh, air breather assets and then also, like, UABs. Um, I got put into uh, working, like, still imagery and stuff instead of the F&B, which I actually really enjoyed. You get to do, like, a lot of, like it, – it's supposed to be, like, phase zero, so just initial analysis, whatever you see, and you just calling it out real quick for someone else to – you know, uh, work on later if if there's more to it, but you're really just trying to do quick turn products to get back to um, the people on the ground that need this stuff. So I was doing that for a little bit. I got moved into uh, being a geospatial reports editor, so just doing the QC process in the DGS. And then from there, it was just um, doing a lot of really interesting stuff and something new. Um, But after four years of being there, uh, I was getting getting a little tired and trying to figure out what I was going to do next with my career. And I was trying to do a bunch of opportunities, but uh, wasn't able to at the time due to some stuff going on in my life. And I talked to my chief there and let him know like, Hey chief, I'm trying to, trying to control my destiny here. And he's like, all right, well, I'll keep that in mind. And then within a few months, he told me that, Hey, we're bringing a recruitment team out. And uh, from there, like I just, I really bought into what the recruitment team was selling and um, put in my application and, and like, you know, Chief used that as a success story. He's like, hey, you know you're you're looking for a way out. We're gonna find opportunities for you and you're gonna take them. And you know that's it's that easy. So I was pretty happy about that.
0: Yeah, good stuff. You guys have some interesting backgrounds, especially from a prior operator guy who knows none of this about the Intel world. Um, hearing the diversity of what you two are doing and also some of the similarities and um, how you both ended up at the same organization that we're about to talk about now is, uh, really interesting for me. So uh, back to Ken, how did you find out about the 724 and um, why did you decide why why decide to put that application and try to come up here?
1: So um, I say before, I uh, got a brief from uh, the recruiter, Mark. Um, he gave us kind of the garden variety. This is what the unit's about um, on an on-class level and kind of pulled some of the Intel, intel professionals that were in the meeting uh, aside and did like a classified at, um version of what uh the the current unit is doing so it did pique my interest because i did want to see what kind of opportunities were outside of um, the rpa industry at this point um, because of my limited knowledge base so that uh kind of drive to be able to know a little bit more about like what what else is out there um really wanted to kind of uh like drive my decision to put in an application um i kind of talked to a couple people uh, within my unit, and asked them if they knew anything about it, as inquisitive, inquisitive nature of myself, um, and they kind of inadvertently said, "Yes, I've worked for a unit of that supported this, op, you know, this particular unit." Um, they gave me the, the down and dirty about the actual seventy-four, but uh, they gave me kind of the. Yes, we work for it. And I think you'd be a good fit because of just your, your way you conduct yourself, the way you conduct um, the intelligence and how you, you're driving initiative um, definitely would be well suited within that career. So I put an application uh, kind of like a Hail Mary at that point because I did not have a lot of experience and I uh, just wanted to see where it went from there.
0: Awesome. We'll talk about the actual ANS process you went through here in a minute, but Jeremy, over to you. A, start with, how did you find out about it? And then B, why did you pull the trigger? Uh, So uh, I'll be a little,
2: you know, open kimono here, but, uh, at the time I'd just uh, gotten in trouble at my command. I'd gotten an LOR for a situation that, you know, it just, uh, it was bad time, but, uh, I got through it and everything. And, um, that was what was kind of stopping me from doing some of the other things I was looking into, like, uh, the national intelligence university and picking up some other things. So, um, working with my chief to find other opportunities and get through that situation. Uh, you know, it was really sitting through that briefing. And, um, actually at the time, like I was kind of told that we didn't really, uh, the unit didn't have a whole lot of positions for, uh, geo-int available, but, um, you know still, I still still was interested and I was like, you know what maybe I'll just I'll put it in the package anyway just see what happens and uh, ended up getting called down and like I was wasn't sure like what exactly the unit was because over at dgs one we did have a a program where our analysts would actually go down to work um, at a different unit out here and we'd be out here for like six months and do stuff like that but it was completely different unit, completely different job. So I really couldn't use that experience to to kind of figure it out. But um, yeah, I'm very happy I was able to to get that application in and, you know, go through the selection process.
0: Yeah, I just want to piggyback on Jeremy's experience too, right? Because there's a lot of people who probably have that same background noise going on and probably just say, I'll never get selected. So they move on and, and try something else. I think Jeremy's example, and there are some other examples that, um, if there's some time in between what happened and your application or if there's other circumstances, it's not a closed deal. Like we're going to bring you down sometimes and, and sort out who you are as a person. And if if you add value and can convince us that, hey, that was just a, a one off uh, type of thing, um, man, we'll get past it. We'll grow and, and let you grow and come here and let you provide and, and be fruitful in the organization. So, hey, I appreciate you staring at Jeremy, because a lot of people wouldn't have. And I think that's an important topic to talk about here. So, Jeremy, I'm going to come back to you first on this one. Um, digging into the ANS experience a little bit when you came, and I know it's probably evolved a little bit um, where we're at now, but what was it like when you came here? If you had to describe it to the audience who, who has no clue, um, how would you describe it?
2: Uh, so, I was in a weird position as well because um, after the fact, I found out that I was really like the first G1 person they ever assessed here. So, they were kind of making it up as they went. However, I would, I, I never would have guessed that going through it. Like the one word I've used to describe this is professional. It is like the most professional interview process I've ever seen uh, military civilian, anything. Like I've never, never seen like this many pieces of it. And especially now um, being a part of all the uh, assessments and selection process, like there's just, there's so much that goes into it and there's so much dedication from like every time it's at least six members from our unit, that are working through this and like interviewing people going through all the different parts of it. Um, so I was just very impressed, which also made me very terrified as I was going through it. Cause I, I had no idea like if I was doing the right thing or saying the right thing and, you know, just trying to be as honest as possible. But like, I'd never been through anything like that. Cause like I said, I joined at 17 and in the military, like you don't really go through a lot of interview processes. So, you know, it was, it was intimidating, but, uh, at the same time, like I wasn't scared away by it. I was just very impressed.
0: Yeah, Jeremy, what what was challenging to you during that? If you could describe that a little bit, and then how did you perceive you were doing as you were moving through that process?
2: Uh, so for me, there was, I mean, the the hardest part was just that open honesty because like, when you're in an interview, you think like, oh, I want to, I need to say the things that they want to hear. But like as I was going through, I was getting really the impression that they don't want to hear anything specific other than like the truth and to really know the individual. So, um, really like pivoting to that. And then also, man, really answering some of those questions that that really hurt to talk about. Like, uh, I remember the, the, (laughs) the question that will always haunt me was, um, uh, one of uh, the interviewers asked me like, Oh, you used to be a linguist. Do you still maintain your language skills? And I, I don't, because it's just, it's a lot. And I just, I haven't put the effort into it. And, uh, she, uh, she responded back with, wow, the air force really invested a lot of money into that. Why, uh, why do you think that wasn't important? And I, I
0: want to say the really same possible. thing to you, Jeremy, cause I want to say the same thing to you. 100%. Chinese is a very useful beneficial language these days.
2: A hundred percent. Like I still have it a little bit, but maintaining it fully to, to pass the DLPT and everything like that was just more than I could do at the time. And, uh, But yeah, it's like just those real raw assessments and like that self-reflection on why I do things and, you know, the good of the Air Force. And it's like some of those questions you really don't ask yourself as you're moving through your career. So, uh, like it was, it was tough, but like very fair questions. So just all things to be prepared for.
0: Yeah, that's very well said. Um, podcast is coming out here this week where I just interviewed four operators who just came through our operator selection last week. Um, and they were one of them was trying to talk about those interviews and describe them a little bit, too, of how difficult they can be, because uh, unlike for the operators, when they're coming through the basic pipeline courses, you can usually just get away with a shallow answer and move on because they have so many. Um, their points here was that uh, they're not moving on. They're going to get you to talk about you and and dig down until they feel like they're getting the authentic you. So I appreciate those answers, Jeremy. All right, Ken, over to you. What was that experience like for you when you came to A&S?
1: Yeah, so my selection experience, um, when, I, when I first got uh, into the room uh, where they were giving the initial, like, problem set to be able to solve, I really didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, I just kind of went with it and uh, tried to apply what, like, fundamentals I learned within tech school and what I've learned on my own throughout my time just kind of being in the intelligence role. And it was very... Um, Very awakening (laughs) for me, per se. But I was persistent at it, and um, I didn't give up. I didn't get frustrated. Um, I did ask questions, a lot of questions, and tried to kind of fill that picture of what they were trying to paint for me. And it was was an an enlightening experience for me.
0: Ken, how did you perceive you were doing when you were going through the multi-day process here? Did you feel like you were doing good or the opposite, or how was it?
1: To be frank, I thought I was doing horribly. <laughs> uh, didn't feel like I was meeting the intent on what they were trying to get after. Um, but I don't think that was at that time. I didn't think that that was like the core of what they were trying to get after. They were trying to see analytical process on why you justify the, the means to an end, essentially, uh, for whatever scenario they're giving you. So it was uh, at that point, I didn't really realize it at the time, but it was more like an after reflection of what they were trying to get after. And I've seen that, especially now with the way we recruit and assess people and being part of the boards and being part of the actual assessment process on numerous occasions and seeing how to apply that and what I'm trying to get after. And it makes makes that whole picture um, come to life.
0: Yeah, Ken, we're going to start with you on this one, um, because you have been on a bunch of these boards. Um, If you could offer one piece of advice or a couple of pieces of advice, what are some of those things that you would offer to those intel folks who are going to apply and come through the process now? What what should they be doing to um, have a better opportunity to get selected? So we do
1: um, have... Uh, the actual career field and uh, your job experience in mind but that's not the end-all be-all for why we're going to hire someone they may not have the interpersonal communication skills or the attributes that we're trying to assess against that particularly suit our unit because there is a certain caliber of person that we try to recruit and retain within our unit um, they may be the smartest person on the face of the earth and but if they have no ability to communicate that in a manner um, down to the lowest level up to the highest level, then that's a fail because they can't effectively accomplish the mission at that point. So we're looking for that individual that's able to cater, uh, cater to the audience essentially, and um, use their interpersonal skills to be able to effectively communicate. I and mean, there's a, a wide facet of different uh, attributes that you try to select against, but that's just one of many that we really try to hone in on.
0: Yeah, good answer. Jeremy, what do you have to add? What are some something that you would um, offer as a tip to folks who are looking to come here in the future and apply? Uh,
2: So really for me, it's it's two two main things is um, first one's going to be the effort that you put in, because you got to remember there's all these people that are bringing you out. uh, Sometimes it's virtual assessments, but for the most part in the past, we've been bringing people out to do these multi-day lifts so like i'm getting pulled out of my day-to-day job to assess you and if you're not giving me the effort then like why would i want to waste my time assessing you so like just putting in that effort in the homework and every like every part of it um is a big deal and then uh the other part is really just like we're assessing all of you like the the entire uh whole airman you know uh so personality is a big part of it too like it's that was what I struggled with was like, I was so worried about being professional cause I had no idea. I thought this was like a, it's a very formal situation, but like we also need to be able to see that person's personality a little bit. And we do that through like assessment dinner and stuff like that. So um, I've just seen people go both sides of that where they don't show us anything or some people are just too uh, informal. And then, you know, so it's just, it's a lot to to kind of toe the line on but like it's it's all part of the process
0: yeah good stuff from both of you i just want to point the audience back to our website as always and if you scroll down to the left hand side of the website you'll see some ans um, tips hanging on there and for everybody not just operators but everybody operators and support we have our attributes hanging on there with of the description our expectations when you come and then some reading material to help you bolster some of these before you get here too so we try to tell people what we value or we don't try we do tell people what we value and we just want to see you come here when we put you on stage and, and meet our expectations and it's harder than it sounds even with the right answers so um those are great answers all right folks we're going to move away from the ans side a little bit and get into the day-to-day intel uh, inside the organization and just know we can only go so deep here. We're keeping this unclass for obvious reasons. Um, these guys will do the best they can to try to relay to you guys what their life is like in the jobs that they do um, and keep it at an unclass level, which is a tough, tough uh, road to hoe. So Ken, we'll start with you on here. Um, can you explain basically what the general task and functional organization, the Intel Squadron, is to the audience so they kind of know how you guys are aligned?
1: Certainly. So the, the intel squadron uh, rise support to the uh, the tier the 724 writ large um there are a number of different um line units for different facets uh within that organization um and no one job is kind of a catch-all uh, garden variety yes you will have your day-to-day be exactly this this line of effort someone an intel person that's gonna to come to this unit may do something vastly different from someone else that's in a different line unit specifically. Um, my experiences have gone across the spectrum uh, from a different, from um, um, being able to do uh, the operator training course support as the intelligence role, all the way into actual mission support and uh, like problem, problem solving on that side. And now where I ser- currently reside is down in the um, Intel training shop where I'm on one of the lead instructors for the mission qualification uh, certification that uh, new intelligence professionals come to our unit and they go through to be uh, combat mission ready.
0: Can you uh, build on that real quick before we go over to Jeremy on that onboarding process? Sounds like you are heavily involved in it. So what can people expect when they get onboarded and come to your training? So
1: when a person comes to the unit, um, they're be put through a variety of uh, different uh, familiarization courses. So anywhere from the introduction to the actual command, uh, writ large, all the way down to how our our unit particular integrates into that whole big architecture. Um, so normal intelligence professionals outside, they don't have a lot of essay on what that looks like, and we build that picture for them, so that way they have the ability of kind of conceptualizing. Um, what their job's going to look like, essentially. And um, from there, we go into uh, different familiarization courses. We have guest speakers from uh, the operator training course. We have people that are uh, operators that come down and actually give their perspective on how their particular mission set uh, fills the, fills into this whole architecture. Um, so it's big, big on familiarization, big on like getting the different um, units and or personnel down there to familiarize the new people with, yes, there's a face to that name or that particular section. So that way they're not uh, intimidated to be able to reach out and ask for assistance or uh, be able to do crosstalk with that particular person or, or uh, organization.
0: Yeah, good stuff. Jeremy, over to you. What was your onboarding process like uh, when you came into the organization?
2: Uh, so it was a little different for me again, because um, as a GNO, it's like I was hired on and, uh, the guy that was here before me, he was heading out the door. So essentially, I was it, and they hadn't really created a onboarding process yet. But uh, I was working. Uh, we only have two geo analysts now in the unit, and then we have two civilians as well. And I worked just directly with the the two civilians, getting like that on the job training and uh, getting sent out to uh, NGA and a few other places to get. Uh, training that I never got before when I was in the Air Force so that's one of the big benefits of being in our unit is there's so many opportunities out there and we have the funding and we have the ability to send people to these things so like I'm always on the lookout for new stuff and it's very rare that I'm told no to find new opportunities to to you know improve my skills so I love that Um, even though it wasn't like formal I was able to piece together what I needed to do well here. And then since then we've formalized that training a bit more and have like a, a new process in place. So the next people that come through are going to be a little more uh, uh, prepared, I guess, than I was. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was a great, great situation and uh, I loved it.
0: Awesome. Ken, how was your onboarding experience? I know it's Kind of weird looking back now that you're kind of running it and you're probably adjusting some things, maybe even uh, from things you experienced when you came on board. But how was that experience when you came in the organization?
1: Yeah, so much like Jeremy's, um, they really didn't have a formalized process in place at that point. Um, it was really just a show up to the unit. Um, they really needed to figure out a spot for me because they, I don't think they really had an idea at that point. They kind of threw... Uh, being uh, Intel support to the operator training course, um, it sounded amazing, like an amazing opportunity. So I took it um, without really knowing a lot about it. <laughs> um, so uh, really, it was a learning pro- It was a hard learning process for me because I really did have to go down to those fine details um, on the fly and learn my learn on my own to be able to effectively support um, the actual course, the operator training course. So I would say it was a little bit of a detriment to my, uh, my process within um, that particular uh, job. So we're, like currently, I'm, uh, we're refining that process completely. So a person that gets out of mission qualification training, um, they're ready across the spectrum to support anything down from operator training course up into the most like diverse mission set that we have. So we've really identified those key gaps within the, the five almost five-year period that I've been here. Um, and made that process more refined and more professional.
0: You may have said this earlier, Ken, but how long is that? So a guy checks in, a guy or girl checks into the organization. Um, are y'all starting like a course every so often? And then how long is that course?
1: So ideally, we try to do two uh, courses um, a year and try to align uh, the PCS cycle with people. We're still, it's a, still a work in progress at this point but we're trying to get the class sizes um, to like six individuals at one point so that way they can pair up and work as teams uh, to be able to uh, uh, effectively accomplish the mission and what they're trying to get at at the graduation of APT. So um, I'd say the current timeline right now is about two to three months, uh, given time for and flexibility for uh, local TDYs and in-house external courses that we need to send them to for certification as well because not all the courses that we offer within the uh, intelligence department through the MPT process, you have external courses that we do need the uh, Intel members to be able to go to, um, to be able to check that box for um, being combat mission ready.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. That's so enlightening uh, for me too, who, who's at the unit and didn't know that. So um, we've got guys onboarded. I'd like to move over Jeremy to the operational tempo and, and what you're doing on a daily basis, as much as you can tell us, um, above the unclass level of what is that daily battle rhythm like for you?
2: Yeah. Um, one quick thing about the onboarding too, is, um, I kind of realized like, you know, you get here and you think like I passed the assessment, I'm here, but really like the assessment kind of continues because once you're in that training, we're still looking at you to see like, where you are going to best fit in the squadron as well? So like, just keeping that you know effort and everything going once you're here is, is a big uh a big boon to you but
0: uh, let me let me double click on that real quick jeremy and ken weigh in on this as well but i love that model actually and kind of relating it back to the operator side down at lackland uh, guys are coming in with um they're kind of open contract inside the special warfare operator world and they're going to figure out where their best fit is after the assessment and selection piece um that's when they'll decide Uh, who will be a PJ, who will be a combat controller, uh, special reconnaissance type of thing. So I know folks are coming here with an MOS, I'm sorry, with an AFSC, sorry, prior Marine here, uh, with an AFSC already, but I like what Jeremy just said there because I think that shows the maturation of our organization too. So Ken, walk me through that. How does that shake out at the end of the course of where folks are going? Yeah, and
1: thank you very much for that segue, Jeremy. I appreciate it. So the, when they're going through mission qualification training, they, uh, we, uh, we're continually assessing their attributes on how well they would fit within a certain different facet uh, within the intelligence squadron writ large or support organizations on the line units specifically. So um, it is our input uh, as one of the, like one of the instructors on um, where they would potentially go, but obviously it resides with uh, the leadership positions on like Based on our recommendations and where we need to fill uh, manning voids uh, and see if those members are going to be best fitted for that. Um, in terms of like through the mission qualification training process, we do have a lot of um, progress checks that um, show their aptitude at certain levels. Um, those are just to like get a gauge on like where they're at um, in terms of like their scholastic aptitude at that point. Um, the big uh, culmination exercise at the end, that's the actual evaluation. That's the one where they can get a pass or fail on specifically. Um, And that's done with little interaction from the instructors and little interaction from the uh, evaluators, kind of like give them a problem set, have them work through it, you know, have them give us their back briefs on everything, and then uh, we give them a final determination on uh, like being effective or non-effective.
0: Yeah, I just want to I mean, this is important, and it's important to folks who are thinking about coming here, and that might sound, you know, I can't control my destiny, but you can. You can through your performance and your ability to adapt to situations because coming maybe from a flying unit as an intel person or an RPA unit or doing what Jeremy was doing, um, coming and working with operators is a – you can compare it to pilots, but I would argue, like I think Ken knows when he was out at the debt, man, there are some strong personalities that you were dealing with out there. and getting inducted into that without getting a course like Ken's talking about now. Uh that's getting thrown into the fire. So A, I love that you guys have a course. B, I love that you're looking at attributes and trying to align people with their strengths because throwing more people into that pit of fire with operators who are very strong-willed, um man, that can be a stressful situation. So I think you guys are doing it right. So Jeremy over to you. I love that you brought that up by the way. Thanks. So, um Relay a little bit of your battle rhythm to us or what your daily experience is like so the people out there who are considering this can can get a kind of an idea of what it would be like.
2: Yeah, no problem. Um, so it's, it's funny to mention that. Like, the strong personalities can be a little daunting at first, especially coming from a DGS. Like, you know, I worked, you know, they call it the sausage factory because you're just grinding out products, and most of the time you never really know who they're going to. Um, when I was deployed while I was at the DGS, like, I actually met some of the units that, our products were going to. And like, they were like, yeah, we receive them. And then sometimes they weren't even really looking through them. And it was like, man, that's, that's frustrating. But, uh, then you get here and yeah, you're dealing with those strong personalities, but you're dealing directly with your customer, which is huge. So if I'm making a product, I can literally walk right down the hall to the guy that's requesting it and say, Hey, I know you're asking for this, but like, can you key me on a little bit more? And they're always happy to like guide you to what they actually want because they'd rather, get it done right in the initial phases, then like tell you you're wrong at the end and get the wrong product. And then, you know, not, not have as good of a mission. So, uh, it's one of my favorite things actually about working here, but on the day to day, um, another good thing about this unit is it really gives you a chance to progress as well. So I got hired on just as an analyst. Um, so I was, you know, I typically make in different products for, uh, uh, the ground operators. So, you know, line of sight stuff, um, elevation, uh, basic grid reference graphics, just everything that they would need to to do their job. And, um, but at the same time, like as I uh, ranked up and stuff, the the unit also gave me the opportunity to take on a a flight chief role. So um, it it can be a little uh, (laughs) crushing at times trying to do uh, a one deep position while also doing a flight chief for, you know, eight, nine individuals, but um, it's really helps with my career and my progression as well. So, it's been great to have that opportunity to do both sides of things not not just getting to do my actual work but then also get to take care of other people in the unit as well
0: awesome uh ken over to you and i know you're working the training course right now but maybe even tie it back to when you were out doing other things um, when you got to the organization what was that battle rhythm like and what were you focused on yeah so
1: the battle rhythm for the training course was uh, something completely different <laughs> Uh, your TDY a lot because uh, the guys are constantly going TDY for uh, certification testing and you know being able to uh, their desired learning objectives off uh, per block um, and being able to you know coordinate uh, with the with Jeremy specifically on uh, or wanna uh, uh, Tim or Mike back at the G1 shop at Maine be able to get uh, G one specific products and knowing exactly what kind of questions to ask. Um, to be able to get the data that um, guys needed, and that was one of the hurdles I had to get over as well, because I had to ask those, I had to ask the guys constantly, like, okay, what are you asking for specifically? That was part of the learning process. Um, so my time of the day was, you know, it was very, very gone a lot and busy a lot. <laughs> but then uh, going over to um, support the uh, special tactics squadron, um, my, you know, being anywhere from. Uh, exercises um, big large uh, multilateral exercises with different services all the way down to uh, individual troop um, or team level exercises where uh, they just need currency uh, re-evaluations and trying to apply, or apply the um, actual scenario development into the current mission set in which they're um, tasked against right now um, with some some of the like more challenging aspects of that because of the dynamic nature of our unit um, things seem to change every six months. So, <laughs> um,
0: how's family life, Ken? Like, how's it been since you've been up there?
1: So family life. I mean, I have a very understanding uh, wife. Um, she has her own profession. She's a full-time um, administrator for an uh, uh, orthopedic surgeon at Pinehurst Surgical, and um, her job is, you know, grueling at times as well. Um, while maintaining the balance with a uh, currently a ten-year-old daughter and a newborn, uh, seven-month-old uh, baby boy. Um, it was, it was challenging, um, being able to be that, uh, be home in body and mind at that point, because it, it's not just being home physically, it's being home mentally as well. Um, that became a challenge. So, you know, have, my my marriage is strong. We've been married for uh, almost 13 years now. I don't think she's going to give up on me yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Congratulations uh, on a new baby, by the way.
1: Oh, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, it was it was challenging, but it's not something you can't overcome with communication and uh, constantly uh, reassuring them. Like, there's you're you're when you're home, you're home. You're not you're not thinking about something else. You're not doing anything else. Um, you're you're home in support of your family at that point. So I think it was kind of like what, you'd be able to turn that switch off uh, when you get home. It's one of the bigger like challenging factors for a lot of people across the whole. I'd say.
0: Yeah. I love it. Jeremy, over to you. How's, how's off duty life been for you since you got up here?
2: Yeah, so it was a, it was a learning process for me. Cause I, uh, was dating uh, my wife now, um, at the time and she decided to move down here with me when I got the assignment and was just extremely supportive, started a new career, a new life here and everything. And, uh, um, we ended up getting married and, uh, and it's, it's been a learning experience for me, like longest relationship I've ever been in. So I've made a lot of mistakes coming up to this point. So sure. There's a, a lot I could teach people on what not to do, but, um, the ops tempo was really high for a while. Uh, just like, you know, Ken said, it's a lot of communication. Um, thankfully, like we live in an era now where, you know, I was able to FaceTime with my wife every night and like, it, it's really on you to, to one, make sure your family's prepared for you to go. And then two, like, staying in contact and um another nice thing about the unit is there's so many people there they will you know come by and cut your grass if you need it or you know make sure that your your family's taken care of and stuff like that and it's you know it's a very good support network which i've been very happy about and um but it's it's what you make of it and um there's times where like the mission the ops tempo just really ebbs and flows where You can be crushed and then there's other times where it just seems like there's nothing going on and you're itching to get out the door type of thing. But you got to really remember during those lulls that you're taking care of your family and you're spending all that quality time that you can, because you're never going to know when that mission's just going to really pick up again. And
0: you're going to need to, you know, jump right out the door. Well said, well said, Jeremy, I'm sticking with you for this one. So what has been the biggest challenge you have dealt with at work over the last year? Uh,
2: man, um, I have to say, so for me, a lot of it's been, you know, doing that, uh, just analyst job while also being a flight chief and like kind of working multiple priorities at the same time. Like we've been doing some pretty big projects and like me as a, you know, just a Jew and analyst, I'd never thought I would have the opportunity to like help staff con ops and do things like that. So like seeing the staffing side of things has been, um, it's, it's been a very big growth product, or process for me because, like, I always thought that I would just be turning out products for people and not, like, pushing things that would be going up to, to generals and beyond and, like, having to do quick turns on that and being called in, you know, whenever stuff needs to get done. And so, like, um, just really growing outside of, like, my basic analyst self has been, it's been a huge uh,
0: step the last few months man thanks for that answer that was great ken over to you biggest challenge over the last year
1: so my biggest
0: challenge i'd say is uh,
1: getting into the role of being an instructor versus being the uh, analyst per se so having to apply all the lessons i've learned either the hard way or the easy way uh, and translate that over to the uh, new students that were going through mpt Um, i've never really done lesson plans i've never really done um, like the formal, the formal version of mission qualification training and developing it from the ground up. So that was kind of a challenge for me as well, uh, writing operating instructions and SOPs and, you know, all the administrative things that go along with training and how to, like, effectively make a professionalized or standardized training program. Um, it's been a little challenging for me because I really haven't done that, <laughs> especially in Intel. So... Uh, It was uh, kind of a hurdle to jump over for me, but um, yeah, it's uh, probably one of the more rewarding uh, positions I've had within the unit. Uh, Being able to see um, guys graduate from mission qualification training and go out and support uh, a major exercise and then hearing the feedback uh, from either the guys on the teams or uh, other intel, Intel members that were on that particular exercise and hearing how, um, they contributed and how well the support was it versus oh uh, you know this person wasn't able to do x y and z you need to revamp your program because we need them to do this when they did this um being able to see the results um is very rewarding and uh yeah i'd say that's probably one of the harder things it kind of just trying to get away from that analyst role and being the support guy and just being the doer 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 and now going into like now i need to pull the reins back and actually be an instructor
0: yeah I can relate Um, and most of the cadre on OTC can relate because we pull them over from the teams and they go from being what I always use the analogy of football they go from being a linebacker to a coach in about a day um, and had no training whatsoever to do it so they focus on those things like you're talking about how to develop a lesson plan how to execute a lesson plan effectively because you may have the best lesson plan but that doesn't mean the person that is executing it is executing it well So, Ken, I'm going to stick with you for a second. So um, if the audience doesn't know by now, after about 20 podcasts, we get to select every person that comes into our organization. And that is something that we don't take for granted. We take that very seriously. As we look at the Intel squadron, Ken, and imagine you're king for a day, describe the person that is like the perfect candidate to you. Um, What are those traits that people need to be successful in the jobs that y'all are doing?
1: So my perception of the ideal person to be able to uh, come through, get through through assessment, then be able to get into the unit uh, and effectively accomplish the mission um, is the interpersonal communication is one. Like if you have all the drive and initiative in the world and stress tolerance and everything else to go along with it, but you can't communicate and you can't communicate across the board from either down to the lowest level, which a person may not be so knowledgeable all the way up into like, Big I, in, Intel community, IC, DoD, and/or interagency like you know realms. Then it's a fail because if you can't communicate it that effectively, it doesn't it doesn't work. Um, but yes, you do need you do need stress tolerance because you will be asked to do a lot, um, and you will have uh, unrealistic timelines per se on a lot of things. You need to be able to effectively communicate. Like no is not an answer in our organization. You need to be able yes, but this is what I can do and this is what this is what will happen.
0: Yeah, I yeah. love it. Um, I like your unrealistic timelines. I've been there since 97 and every timeline you ever get at that organization seems unrealistic. so hey I'm gonna steal that um, that's my new saying because it is it's unrealistic timelines now what um, there's no going up to somebody saying hey boss that that timeline's unrealistic. It doesn't matter. That's what we have. That's the time we have left to get the products out. So, love that description. Jeremy, over to you. Um, Describe the perfect um, applicant or the perfect intel person. What traits do you think they need to have to be successful up there?
2: Yeah, that's right. So, I'm going to defer to our our unit motto of uh, fate favors the willing. And it's something that's like really kind of. When I first got to the unit, I'm like, yeah, yeah, motto, whatever. But, um, like, the longer I've been in the unit, the more I've realized, like, how apt it really is. Because there's been so many opportunities that I would have just missed out on if I would have been saying no. And, uh, I mean, people in our unit have been replaced because they just say no. And so it's, you know, it's just because you have a four-year tour here doesn't mean that you're actually going to do four years here. Um, uh, It's just it's like Ken said, you know, you can't say no, you got to be able to say yes, but, um, like don't, don't just blindly say yes. You know, you have to be able to, cause you're, you're going to get your, you're going to get your soul crushed. So be able to adapt, um, be able to effectively communicate and tell people like, Hey, this is how I can work and this is what I can do for you. But then also be looking for those, uh, other opportunities to help, you know, make the mission better. So like problem solving is a huge one for me. Uh, There's so many times where like, you know, you think your systems are are good to go and you're using them in garrison and everything's great. And then as soon as you go out TDY to these locations in the middle of nowhere and you start using your systems, suddenly nothing works the way it is. And, uh, you got to find an answer because the mission still got has to happen. So you need to do everything you can to make it go as smoothly as possible. So you got to get out of your comfort zone. You got to find, you know, that get to yes on certain things. And yeah, um, those would probably be the biggest ones for me.
0: Yeah, I love it. That's why I like asking this question to two people in the same organization because, A, I'm guessing you guys didn't rehearse, and, B, you're saying a lot of the same thing. So um, I think that we can take that as gospel, especially the audience and and what it takes to be inside the organization that they're in. And talking about Jeremy and, and him saying problem-solving, you know, we just got done with operator selection, and one of the biggest things that guys need to work on that didn't get picked up is – Um, when i'm giving them feedback we talk about problem solving and how we didn't see their ability to get outside the box fast enough and find solutions uh, because there has to be a solution there isn't um, just staying inside one rut or one ravine and thinking you're going to find things so their question that always comes back to me is well how do you learn to solve problems better or solve problems differently and what i keep pushing to them is the first thing i tell people is you got to read but you got to read things that pushes your assumptions and pulls pulls you out of your normal lines of thinking. And I always use the analogy of, if you're a conservative, let's look at the political realm, which is heated right now. But if you're a conservative, um, I would guess that you're probably just reading things that confirm the values and things that you have. What I wanna push people to do is read the opposite side and learn how to not get emotional when you're reading it and seriously consider other people's opinions, because then you start opening up awareness and start learning how to see things a little bit differently. And when those problems start arising, you can start finding the opposite sides of the problem set or a solution, or you can see things a little bit wider than you could before. So guys, we are around in third base now. I can't believe this is already over. I could do this all day. Um, but here's the last question. Ken, we're going to start with you. You're on stage and you're getting to speak to all the air force Intel people out in the world. Um, and you're getting to brief them on the 724. What is that message? Why should they consider the 724 for an assignment?
1: Certainly. So, being in the 724th is unlike any other opportunity you will, you will have had in the Air Force and you will have in the Air Force. This is very, This unit is very dynamic in nature and very rewarding in its a, an entire like spectrum. So you will do things in your AFSC and you will do things vastly outside of your AFSC and you. May, you know, it'll challenge you on a day-to-day basis, if not a yearly basis to be able to learn and be consistent on what's going on in the operational environment. Most Air Force units, you won't have that. You won't have, within a fighter unit, you may not have the diverse nature of being able to perform in like a three deltas uh, career field a little bit, or over into maybe an imagery analyst a little bit and being able to kind of facilitate that role. If you're the guy that's there at that point in time. So it's not just a one-stop shop. Yes, you're gonna be an operations intelligence analyst, and have the garden variety. Yes, you're gonna you're gonna build a, a PowerPoint and you're gonna brief it to the the wing or the group or whatever. At that point, you're gonna do far beyond that, and it's the most rewarding um, five almost five years that I've had. And um, I look forward to sharing those experiences uh, what I can <laughs> up to the, the bigger Air Force um, and the rest of the the DoD writ large. I mean. Well, you
0: know I had no idea what my next assignment was going to be, so <laughs> that that was great Ken I appreciate that answer a lot Jeremy, over to you uh you got the stage every Intel person in the Air Force is sitting there um what are you telling them why why should they make seven two four a future assignment uh, for me it was i mean this mission is is amazing like getting to
2: do some of the things that no one else in the Air Force as an, as an intel like analyst will ever get to do um in my time here I've gotten to do like exchanges with other countries and like go to some beautiful places. And, and like the training that I've gotten, I would never get anywhere else in the air force. Like, like I said, sometimes it's just a blank check of like, Hey, I think this is good and I can justify it. And you know, it, it helps the mission. So we go for it. And I mean, just doing that stuff and then even like some of the fun stuff, uh, you know, going out with the operators and, you know, we get to do some of the shooting and stuff and like, getting to fire off a 40 mic mic cannon like that was that was pretty cool and even something silly like throwing a a smoke grenade like something i would have never done sitting at a dgs but uh just getting to go outside and do more things than just be an analyst and like uh i mentioned earlier getting to work directly with your customer every day and like getting to see how your products help them and then improving your products based on that and like I mean, one instance where I had, uh, you know, I was doing some terrain uh, analysis for one of the guys, and they had to walk up a side of a mountain, and like the data that we had, it just it wasn't working for them, and so we we had to keep adjusting the degrees and stuff to to say like, oh, you know, 15 degrees is actually a lot harder to walk up than we originally thought, and like, cool, man, uh, I'll adjust these colors and go from there, and like, just getting that feedback um, from somebody is. I mean, it can really help recommit you to a mission when you're actually hearing like, even if your product didn't work for somebody, just getting to hear that like one, they're using it and two, like, Hey, I want it better this time and here's how we'll do it. And like, I just, I never thought I'd get that working where I was before. So, um, I, I love it. Love coming here every day,
0: man. This has been a fun podcast for me and getting to talk to you two, And I sure do. I just want to say, as we're getting off of here, thank you both for taking time out of your day. Like, Y'all probably can't tell, but Jeremy's outside of the organization in his car or standing outside of his car at times, trying to get enough service um, on his phone to complete this interview. So to both of you, uh, I appreciate it tons.
1: Yeah, no, thank you very much for this opportunity, Trey. Um, it was uh, great. I thank, thank you for relaying it to us and giving us the opportunity to do this.